Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Kirsten Boley. I'm a PhD candidate at The Ohio State University, where I study the impact of elemental abundances on planet formation and evolution. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study the high redshift universe through simulations and observations. And I'm Cormac Larkin. I'm a PhD student at the University of Heidelberg and Max Planck Institute for Nuclear Physics, and I study anything and everything to do with massive stars. You're listening to episode 79, The Vanishing Act. So, spooky season is just around the corner. No. (laughs) It just so happens to be one of my favorite holidays. So, this episode, we'll be diving into some disappearing and potentially a few ghost sightings. So, some disappearing acts, some ghost sightings. (laughs) And first of all, what's your favorite thing about Halloween and you have to have a favorite Sabrina I know that you don't like Halloween (laughs) but you have to have a favorite thing a favorite thing or a favorite candy it can be a candy it can be like costumes what's your favorite aspect of Halloween yeah I mean I'm definitely a Halloween hater over here I don't feel like I've ever had like a super great Halloween maybe that's why I need to have an epic Halloween and then my opinion will change but Maybe my favorite thing about Halloween is those smoke machines that people get. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. put them, like, in things and then – or, like, where you bob for apples. The Halloween games. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I like those. What about you, Cormac? Mostly, I've never had a smoke machine any Halloween I've ever had. Um... (laughs) What? Really? No Irish Halloween, which is actually, I guess, the traditional Halloween, because Halloween dates back to, you know, Celtic festivals. But um, yeah, for me, favorite thing about Halloween, it's my birthday around that time. So there's usually, you know, as as a child, it was like a themed birthday party on Halloween because it was the easy option. But in terms of what I like most, I suppose the games are great fun. So you'd stick a, a coin into an apple and hang it from a string from a door. I don't know if you guys do that. And you try and grab the coin out. Wait, like, just like, just like, am I complicating? No, no, it's, 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 it's about as simple as it sounds. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Just try and tear it out with your teeth. Sort of like a very low budget pinata. (laughs) I love that. Also, wait, I thought of it, you guys. My favorite thing is haunted houses, like walking through them. Yeah. That, That is so fun. Okay. Sorry. I should have said that, but. I love haunted houses. I love a good corn maze. I really like people chasing Ooh. me around with like... Corn maze? <laughs> oh my God. I'm learning so much about American culture on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in the theme of Halloween and spooky season, we're going to be jumping in to this topic. But first, we'll need a PKE meter a spectre detector and whatever ghost hunting devices that we can find. So we're going to start off and prepare ourselves with a few intro questions. My first question for you guys 
is what are gravitational waves and how do we detect them? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I feel like gravitational waves are quite a spooky phenomenon. <laughs> um, so the classic way you'll hear them described are ripples in space-time. And if you've taken general relativity or if you will take general relativity, you'll learn that more mass creates more curvature in space-time. And Einstein showed that things like black holes and neutron stars, so massive and accelerating objects that are orbiting each other, would create waves that go out in all directions from the source traveling at the speed of light. So these gravitational waves were first detected indirectly through the Hulse-Taylor binary pulsar and their effect on its period. Um, but there are a bunch of different types of gravitational waves and a million experiments looking for all these different types of gravitational waves. We could have like an entire episode just on one frequency of gravitational waves. But what won the Nobel Prize a few years ago in physics were the high-frequency gravitational wave detection with the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, or LIGO. So this was the first direct detection of a gravitational wave from two black holes, more than 30 times the mass of the sun. The final fraction of the second before they merged, they emitted this gravitational wave. And since then, there's been dozens of events like this that have been detected. It's a super exciting field. And you might have heard in the news recently more about low-frequency gravitational waves. So this has been an ongoing project using pulsars because pulsars are these rapidly rotating neutron stars that are basically like clocks in our universe. Every pulse that we observe comes in at such a predictable time that we can literally use them as clocks. But they expect that the slight deviation in the period that we observe of a pulsar from the slight change in the distance from the pulsar to us from a low frequency gravitational wave could actually cause a predictable change in periods over a long period of time. And recently, the North American Nanohertz Observatory for Gravitational Waves, or Nanograv, claimed evidence for detection. So there were 79 pulsars that they observed over 15 years. Wow. And they claimed evidence for a supermassive black hole binary or stochastic background of gravitational waves. So they predict that a lot of it is from supermassive black hole binaries, but really what they're showing evidence for, and my friend Rowena, who is in like the Australian version of this collaboration, Ozgrav, was like, you have to be really careful and say just evidence for detection, not an actual detection. They've shown evidence for the sum of all these gravitational signals in the universe from a bunch of different sources, but they haven't really pin down what it is. It could also be partly from primordial gravitational waves, which formed within the first second of the universe. It's a really exciting time for gravitational wave research, I guess, at all frequencies and all over the world. That sounds super cool. Also, it sounds like they're finding, I guess, evidence for kind of like a gravitational wave cosmic microwave background or the equivalent. Is that right? Yeah. That's a great question. Actually, like, well, they have, again, it's evidence for the detection, but if they do detect primordial gravitational waves, it would allow them to see even further beyond the cosmic microwave background, right? Because the cosmic microwave background is from recombination when photons decoupled from matter, but the primordial gravitational waves would have been from like near inflation, like 
right next to the Big Bang. That's crazy. Okay, so our next question. What can gravitational waves tell us about objects that other detection methods can't? So the kinds of objects that we can see in gravitational waves, many of them can't actually be detected in visible light. So for binary black hole mergers, they don't produce any light or any electromagnetic radiation from the merger event. And so we can only measure their frequency and mass ratios and other properties from observations with gravitational wave observatories like LIGO and Virgo. And these work through the technique of interferometry. So you may have used a Michelson interferometer during one of your labs. But the idea is that you shine a laser into a beam splitter and this gets split into two arms at a 90 degree angle. These beams are reflected after traveling the same path length perpendicular to one another and they recombine and then go to a photo detector. And so a detector like LIGO, they have a very precise setup where the laser beam, when it's recombined, it does complete destructive interference and so basically there's no light coming through. And what happens is a gravitational wave passes through it actually changes because it's ripples in space-time. The lengths of the two arms change relative to one another, and so the laser is no longer in perfect destructive interference, and you get flashes of light. And so from these flashes of light, they can actually measure the properties of the gravitational wave, like its frequency and duration. So yeah, so that's how LIGO and Virgo work. And the other thing that we can do with these kinds of detection methods that other methods can't is if you have an electromagnetic component, such as something like a kilonova, where you have a black hole and a neutron star or a double neutron star merger, you get a gravitational wave signal and visible light or some other electromagnetic signal, typically, say for a kilonova, all across the spectrum, that these can be used to provide an independent constraint on the Hubble constant because you get a photometric redshift from the kilonova itself, like the electromagnetic component, and you also get the gravitational wave signal. And so this may be able to resolve the long-standing Hubble tension where there's two methods to measure the expansion velocity of the universe and they aren't in agreement and people are trying to figure out why and so this would actually be a third way to measure that and try and figure out which one is correct finally have a tiebreaker for it yeah exactly (laughs) one other tiebreaker isn't everyone trying to break the Hubble tension with every possible thing with frbs guaranteed nobel prize for whoever does it and proves it so why not Yeah, every single time I see a paper that's talking about the Hubble constant, I'm like, okay, which way are they going to go this time? But our last intro question is, what types of black holes are there and how do they make material vanish? Yeah, so this question actually leads really well into my astrobite for today. So there are three categories that astronomers tend to use when they talk about black holes. There's the stellar mass black holes, like the ones that we were talking about with LIGO. Those were what caused the first directly detected gravitational wave and the one that actually goes missing in my astrobite. So stay tuned for whether or not it's found. Then there's supermassive black holes. So almost every large galaxy has one of these at their center. We've probably all seen that famous Event Horizon Telescope image of a supermassive black hole in the center of our galaxy. So these are hundreds of thousands to billions of times the sun's mass. And quasars, which I often talk about in my intro, are an ultra-luminous active galactic nucleus from a supermassive black hole. So you asked how they make material vanish. Well, it's interesting and it's kind of funny that they actually make material vanish by making light 
in a weird way. So quasars are ultra luminous because they're accreting so much matter. And there's this accretion disk where gas falls into their center. And most bright quasars are a thousand times brighter than the luminosity of the Milky Way, which is pretty insane. Then there are intermediate mass black holes, which should technically fill the gap between stellar mass and supermassive black holes. So these are hundred to tens of thousands of times the sun's mass. And we haven't found them yet. It's a really open problem as to where these intermediate mass black holes are. Ongoing area of research. Sounds super spooky. I know. <laughs> well, there's a claimed candidate. There was detection in LIGO data, I think, from O3, where they had two very large stellar mass, say 80-something solar mass. Two of them merged and produced an over 100 okay. solar mass product. So people are saying that that's like the first strong candidate or maybe even detection. So literally revolutionizing the world of gravitational waves and black holes, these gravitational wave experiments. Okay, and then lastly, there are primordial black holes, which are from the beginning of the universe. So these are 100,000 times a fraction of a few grams to 100,000 times the sun's mass, which is pretty insane, the range of mass. And they are formed from these pockets of hot material that were dense enough uh, to form black holes in the very first second of the universe. There's no proof yet, but all the theorists are very excited to try to make a measurement or think of ways to potentially detect these. And there's a paper that Planet Nine might be a primordial black hole. I love anything primordial. Like, <laughs> you slap primordial on to anything and I'm immediately interested. So I'm right there with the theorists. I hope that we can find some evidence, maybe... When I first saw that paper, I just, out of curiosity, I thought, okay, so what would the radius of that be? And it's like of order, of, like the size of a marble or a grape for an Earth mass black hole. And I just think that's mental that, you know, could you imagine everything on Earth in the size of a marble? Yeah. Okay. So let's jump into these astrobites. So first up, we've got Sabrina and you're going to tell us about the detective work you've been doing on a missing black hole. That was actually kind of one of my dream jobs to be a detective, but obviously <laughs> didn't pan out that way. <laughs> yeah, so I finally get to tell you whether or not this black hole is found or is it vanishing forever. So my astrobite is called The Case of the Missing Black Hole, and it's by Yanni Brand on a paper by A.J. Frost et al. from 2022 that was published in Astronomy and Astrophysics. So... The main point of this astrobite is that there is a peculiar radial velocity that was detected in this stellar system, and the authors are trying to rule out whether the detected radial velocity holds for an inner star and a stellar mass black hole and outer star, so a triple system, or if the black hole is missing and it's really just a binary star system. So either are interesting in their own right. If there were the black hole, this would be the closest stellar mass black hole that we know to Earth. Otherwise, it's really interesting example of kind of a transitional state for these interesting stars called BE stars. So it provides us like a glimpse into the evolution of BE stars. You mentioned there's these two scenarios, right? Yeah. Is there a reason why they suspect only these two scenarios? Is it just because with the particular radial velocities, it can only either be the triple system or something with a black hole? Yeah, so there's actually another theory that there's like another tight stellar binary, which is the black hole. So it's actually a quadruple system. 
But I think in previous papers to this one, there'd been kind of some simulations that had ruled it out. And this paper in particular sort of narrows it down to these two to start with as the most plausible scenarios, given all the other previous papers and observations. Okay. But that's really, yeah, that's a really good question because it's hard to just kind of come up with these things without lots of observations and simulations. So yeah, super interesting system. And going back to these BE stars, what are they? So BE stars are a type of B stars, which are main sequence stars, hydrogen burning. They're about two to 16 times the mass of the sun and they're super luminous and they have like strong neutral helium absorption lines and somewhat strong hydrogen lines. BE stars are of B spectral type and they're sort of between a massive and supergiant star. And the key thing with B stars is they have one bomber line in emission or at some point time in their lifetime they had one bomber line in emission so that's just kind of like the rough definition for a BE star so this system is called HR 6819 probably should have mentioned that earlier and it's 340 parsecs away and it was first identified before all these theories for what it actually is as a multiple star system in 2003 so it's taken like nearly 20 years to kind of figure this out wow yeah, crazy. That's a really long time. Right? Yeah, so both of these scenarios, whether that's the close inner BE star with orbiting a stellar mass black hole with a further out star, or just a tight binary star system, so two stars that are orbiting each other really close in, predict very different orbital motions in astrometry. Astrometry being like where they are on the sky and knowing that to an extremely precise level. And to answer the question as to what this stellar system actually is, they look at Muse and gravity high resolution images. So these are both on the European Southern Observatory Very Large Telescope. Muse is an integral field spectrograph observing between 480 and 930 nanometers, but it has a much lower resolution than gravity which is an infrared interferometer. Crazy that they do interferometry in the infrared. I guess it's crazy that interferometry worked to detect gravitational waves too. Like, I feel like the higher frequency you go up, the harder it is to do interferometry. So I've talked about radio interferometry before, and that's still difficult, but you're measuring finer and finer phase differences, and you just need to make things even more precise. You need to temperature control things. Anyway, gravity is really powerful because it can resolve milliarc second scales and these large magnitude differences. It observes in a K band, so between two to four micrometers. That's extremely precise because they've talked about some interferometers that would need to be basically space-based observatories. That means that those will be even more precise than in the future. Well, if you think about it, the resolution is lambda over D, right? So for radio interferometry, where you have a much larger wavelength, you need a much larger spacing between the two. But for infrared, since the wavelength is a lot shorter, you, can, you don't have to move to space yet. So these two instruments were used to determine which of these two scenarios is actually happening. So basically, if the tight in binary is the scenario that's true, then you'll see two sources that are separated by about 1.2 milliarc seconds. Otherwise, they expected for the stellar mass black hole scenario, 
with a BE star orbiting it and another star further out, they expected that the Muse would just show a single source. So what they found, spoiler alert, Muse showed just a single source and gravity with its super high resolution ability to see milliarc second scales showed two sources that were separated by about 1.2 milliarc seconds. And then with motion consistent with the spectroscopic 40-day period that they observed prior to this. So basically the black hole did go missing. No. And the tight stellar by <laughs> the stellar binary, which is likely a BE star stripping from a central B star's mass is the most likely scenario. And they need elemental abundances of the stars so that they can actually compare this to to simulations of massive binary star system evolution. So it's really exciting. It's not the closest stellar mass black hole, unfortunately. That's super interesting. But also, if it's a super tight binary, then I'm really interested to see how they're going to be able to resolve the spectra of the two different stars because I imagine that they're going to just kind of blend together into one sort of blob of a star. Yeah, that's true. I mean, can you disentangle the spectra of two different sources if they're overlapping? Like, Yeah, this is something that one of my research groups does quite often. That's so like in massive stars, they're very often in binaries. And so you'll have stars of different spectral types orbit each other and you essentially try and fit two models to it and the combination will tell you, you know, the most likely components. And what really helps is, depending on the period of binary, if you can get multi-epoch spectra, because then you can see as the orbit changes and they're shifted, the lines will shift. And so then you can try and pick out like which lines belong to which of the two. And there's also certain lines where, depending on the spectral type uh, and the surface gravity of the stars, for example, one line would have components from two different stars. And so then you can actually fit that and see, okay, the wings are from one star and then the core is mostly from the other one. So basically you're doing some sort of like signal match filter where you're trying to like deconvolve the spectra that's together? Sort of. I mean, I'm not familiar with that specific technique, but... You have a grid of models and you fish those two grids and say, okay, I know there's two things in here. What is the best pair of these things that you can match with some Bayesian fitting? And then it'll tell you. And then usually what happens is somebody will try and fit it by hand better, but that gives you a starting point. Yeah, very cool. So, okay. So this is like a super exciting astrobite. No black holes, but thank you for bringing us that astrobite, Sabrina. Sure. And so... Now it's time for the vanishing voices of the distant hollows. (laughs) And by that, I mean our space sound. So close your eyes. What do you guys think? It sounds like the start of like an Enya song or something. (laughs) 
it sounded like some sort of time series like it was kind of going continuous there was no particular at least like i couldn't identify any particular pattern sounds like you know a stream of some sort of data it reminds me a lot of those space sounds we've done before which are a combination of all the kepler observed planets periods you know what i mean I'm trying to think, I guess that at least sounds intelligent enough that I'm not embarrassed. <laughs> I mean, I've been so wrong every time. Like, I never get it. So don't worry. I know. <laughs> I'm going to say it's a sonification of some sort of background, like a gravitational mm. wave background or cosmic wave background. It sounded something kind of stochastic, no particular pattern. And now it's going to be some sort of, you know, perfect Fibonacci series or something. Okay. I am proud to say that you guys are both wrong. <laughs> well, what a surprise. It would be weird if there were planets sound in here in this particular episode, maybe. But as long as it's massive stars related, I can maintain some dignity. <laughs> no, you guys did a really good job. I don't know what I would have thought that it was. So this is actually a galaxy called Hoax Object. And it's a pretty big galaxy, and it has this really pretty blue ring, I guess, surrounding kind of the central part of the galaxy that's dominated by young, massive stars. Like, the center of the galaxy has yellow, and it has, like, a lot of mostly older stars in it. So what this sonification was, was basically a clockwise scan of this galaxy, um, going around and then some of the higher twinkling sounds that you heard were some of the stars and I can actually show you guys what this looks like because oh wow so it's actually like taking a slice it's like one of those music boxes where it kind of the little bumps hit the thingy you guys have you seen those on Instagram they're like little music boxes where the wheel turns uh-huh. and hits these little metal fingers it, it's a bit like that right that it's yeah but it's actually taking a slice, like a 2D slice throughout the galaxy, kind of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, that was the space sound. I hope you guys like it. It wasn't too spooky. Yeah, it was great. Thanks, Kirsten. Of course. So now we have Cormac, who's going to tell us about the mystery of the vanishing stars yeah so i'm going to talk about an astrobite titled vanishing stars surface new island in the massive ocean and it's very fitting that it kind of well not directly but kind of relates to my area of research in massive stars so the author of this astrobite is storm columns and the title of the research paper it's based on is failed supernovae as a natural explanation for the binary black hole mass distribution and it was written by Paul Disberg and Chais Nelemans in Nijmegen in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. I guess I'll talk a little bit about the background of this first before getting into the astrobite. We've heard about stellar mass black holes earlier in this astrobite, and stellar mass black holes, as the name suggests, come from stars, specifically massive stars. And so these massive stars are responsible for creating stellar mass black holes. And Massive stars typically undergo a core collapse supernova, so a very bright, violent end, something that's easy to see. But some of these massive stars might not succeed in undergoing a supernova explosion. So they have what's called a failed supernova, where some material is ejected, but it's not nearly as bright as a supernova. And so they sort of collapse to a black hole. 
And because less mass is ejected, more of that mass is retained. So basically you get a more massive black hole than you'd expect from one of these failed supernovae. Now, you may remember I talked about LIGO earlier and how it's been detecting black holes. Well, there's been three observation periods at LIGO so far. So three kind of observation periods. And this has given us a mass distribution of black holes from black hole, black hole binary mergers. And so this mass distribution will be influenced by the stellar evolution that led to that. So massive stars make black holes and the masses of black holes that you get. It's not a flat spectrum. You get peaks and troughs, or at least that's what we've observed so far with through three observation periods. And instead of it just having, say, more low mass black holes, fewer high mass black holes like you'd expect from initial mass function arguments, while that is somewhat of a feature, there's clearly gaps and peaks, right? And it's actually trimodal. I mean, I don't do anything with black holes, but that's kind of surprising to me. I wouldn't think that there would be a whole bunch of features in the sizes of the black holes that are forming. Is that something that we think is like an observational bias for some reason? Or do we think that these troughs are from some underlying physics that's happening during the evolution of, well, these stars? So there's two schools of thought. Essentially, the, so in this paper and in other work by Fabian Schneider and collaborators, which is very similar to this, they've shown a theoretical background for how this could work, where certain masses of black holes are favoured because certain core masses of stars would lead to a failed supernova, which would give you a more massive black hole than you would otherwise get from a star of initial mass, sort of like I said earlier. And so that's an explanation for this. It doesn't mean that it's the right explanation. It could also just be a lack of data. So I know some people in the field think that in observation period four, which is coming up for LIGO and Virgo, that they'll detect more black holes and that this peak and trough will kind of go away. So I think until there's more data, it's a bit of an open question, but there's definitely a strong argument theoretically. This paper shows how you could use failed supernovae as natural explanation for this as suggested in the title of their paper but again it's a little bit of an open question in that there's only about 100 black hole mergers so far there'll be many 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 more in the coming years makes sense so it's basically like doing statistics on a very small population so you may start to see some features that aren't necessarily completely there but you can't also rule it out that they're not physically happening like there's not something physically driving it yeah makes sense well yeah i mean i know from reading this paper and from the paper by schneider and collaborators that they have favored core masses that come from binary evolution that there's at least in the schneider paper there's this binary evolution considered like i said there's a solid reason to think that this could be from failed supernovae but just talk a little bit more in this astrobite, the paper that it's based on. So in this work, they created a prescription for the relationship, the initial mass of the star and the black hole mass you get for both the successful and failed supernova. And then they use that to see, OK, can we recover this gap in the distribution? And they need to make sure they don't overpredict supernovae. So they need to they needed to check if the stars actually vanish, if the supernova failure rates would then affect the detection rates. So essentially they should be predicting more supernovae than we see because then some of them would be failed. And so they do find that about 25% of supernovae could be failed supernovae, which we wouldn't actually detect. But it's sensitive to the mass limits used for determining whether supernovae is failed or not and also the initial mass function that you use because some people 
have suggested that for massive stars, the initial mass function is top heavy. So, for example, in 30 Doradus, found sort of overabundance of massive stars than what you'd expect for the, the mass available to produce stars. And so when they use these uh, prescriptions, the resulting black hole mass distribution does give two peaks and a gap at approximately the right places for the, obs- the observations. What's 30 Doradus? Is that a paper that you're referring to? Oh, no, sorry. 30 Doradus or the Tarantula Nebula. It's the most massive oh. star-forming region in the local universe. It's in the Large Magellanic Cloud. Oh, interesting. It's actually got the most massive star known, so that's R136A1, which every time they point a telescope, a better telescope at it, it gets smaller. People thought it was a 1,000 solar masses back in the 80s. Then it was 300. Now it's in the low hundreds because, you know, with a better telescope, you can resolve it better. And so one star splits into two or three. But yes, it's the most massive star in the local universe. My other question is, so for these simulations, are they mostly like statistical or do they actually do any modeling? Do they do they just sort of use supernova hydro simulations that already exist and kind of use the statistics from them? Or do they model things more at a fundamental level? Yeah, like I said, so I've actually read the other paper. They come to the same conclusion, but in more detail. And they did do the full thing in Mesa. And they have like a rule where, say, if it hits a certain core mass, it does a certain thing. They don't have to simulate the supernova. But what they know is that with certain core masses, you get certain outcomes. And that's how they did it. Cool. So in the work, the distribution distinctly shows that the supernova rescription creates one peak at about 10 solar masses and a gap until around 22. And so they say the lower peak is caused by the failed supernovae in the black hole island. And so it seems these vanishing stars would be a natural explanation for the lower number of black holes detected between 14 and 22 solar masses. Now, the observations show a large number of high-mass black holes can be created with failed supernovae, but they could also be formed from other channels, uh, which allow for higher masses or maybe some physics they didn't consider. I guess the conclusion, upcoming gravitational wave campaigns will give you know thousands of detections and then these mass ranges, these peaks and troughs, will be either refined or maybe disappear. And failed supernovae are sort of a hot topic in the massive stars community from their connection to binaries. And also new transient surveys would be important for this because the idea is these stars disappear. So if they're close enough that the star itself is observed, then the star would disappear. And okay, this is harder to detect because obviously with a supernova, you get a big flash and it's easier to notice that you can see a star where you wouldn't see the progenitor. And so with this, you have to see the progenitor before it disappears. And so it is harder to detect. But for ones that are close, we may be able to detect them. That's super interesting. That means that it sounds like if we really want to be able to detect these things vanishing, then we really need to have some robust like all sky surveys, like, you know, like assassin and stuff like that. Yeah, there's been direct collapse to black hole for different stellar masses uh, claimed before. So there was a paper a few years ago about an LBV candidate in a galaxy where they had the spectrum of the galaxy and lines that was that were only from a luminous blue variable star. So this is a star that's very, very massive and it's going through these big outbursts and it's thought to be near the end of its life. And there's theories that these stars can collapse straight into black holes. And so they had these spectra of this galaxy over a number of years. And then at one point, these lines disappeared without any transient detected. And so the, the thinking is that this LBV could have collapsed directly to a black hole. Very interesting. Is Assassin, like Zwicky Transient Facility, similar or just an all-sky, real-time transient observing? So at Ohio State, we have a large portion of Assassin, and 
most of the people that use the assassin data are looking specifically for supernova transients and things like that things where you would want to be able to see like changes day by day so yeah shout out alex i know (laughs) yeah thank you cormac for bringing us that astrobite now it's time for our one sentence summaries sabrina you're up first Sure. Okay, so with multiple models to explain this stellar system, the tight binary with a 40-day orbital period won out, causing the stellar mass black hole theory to vanish. I love that. And Cormac? So I have gravitational waves suggest failed supernovae as a possible solution to the mass gap mystery. Ooh, I like that. You're copying my phrasing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. Well, actually, so I asked ChatGPT for feedback on this and it said it was good. So that's it. We should we should do one sentence summary ChatGPT version at some point. So I was trying to, you know, because this is my first full podcast, I was trying to practice yesterday on how to answer questions in discussion. So I said to ChatGPT, pretend you're a podcast co-host and you're interviewing me based on the text of the Astrobite, which I gave it. But it didn't understand that it was meant to ask me questions and I would respond. So it just printed a transcript of two podcasters talking to each other and then gave feedback on its own conversation. <laughs> I just thought, oh my God, I'm getting nowhere with this. <laughs> we'll just see how tomorrow goes you know i love that so we've got a little bit of time for some discussion questions so one of the questions that i had was for things that we expect to disappear like these stars that may not have a supernova and just turn into a black hole how can we actually be confident that we knew that they existed to begin with and it's not like a false positive that they disappeared or something else happening within our data. What do you guys think? Well, multi-epoch data, things like Gaia, things like archive data in general, all sky surveys. I mean, these are all, you know, if you see something 10, 20, 50, 100 times beforehand, then that kind of helps you out. Uh, But I do think if we're going to start having transients detecting disappearing things on a regular basis, it will be because they've been observed umpteen times beforehand. Mm. Yeah, I think from this question follows another really interesting question, which is false positives in general in astronomy. Like, I think we've talked about the detection of phosphine on Venus or the supposed alleged detection of phosphine on Venus. (laughs) I feel like alleged is a very like a murder mystery (laughs) word. Um, (laughs) So, or, you know, B modes from the CMB or the global 21 centimeter signal from before the universe was ionizing. So I think there's a lot of huge results that make the news in astronomy. And then a bunch of different papers refuting the results coming out in the weeks following so i guess maybe this is kind of a different view of this question i think like that's kind of the point of collaborative science and really interesting in that the gravitational wave background evidence that was found with nanograv was also supposedly found with the chinese pulsar timing array osgrav the australian version so i think that just points the fact that we really need multiple people working on the same problem which can oftentimes feel really toxic and competitive like they're racing to find the right answer but also 
I think that reduces false positive results because you're like, well, why did they observe it and we didn't? Having multiple detections of the same thing is really important. Yeah. I also think it's kind of interesting to think about like racing to discover something in general because a lot of the time I almost – I almost think that the idea of like mm. publish or perish, this idea kind of gets kind of wrapped into this race as well. And it seems like it's both a good thing that people are working on the same data, but also if you're working on short timelines because you're trying to get an exciting result out because, you know, you need it for your next job, like for a postdoc or whatever, or whatever award or grant or whatnot it seems like it could also lead to some mistakes and but I guess it is nice that other people will correct you if you're wrong <laughs> yeah I feel like you hate it in the moment <laughs> yeah and there's a big rush to be the first not necessarily the, the best that there's this kind of push in say with some of the JWST data having zero proprietary time and groups getting scooped even in a matter of hours after the data are being taken and you know there's questions about protecting early career scientists who are like learning how to use this data as opposed to just doing it really quickly and being the first one to do it and therefore getting all the citations. I think there's definitely a trade-off between doing it quick and doing it right. And I think the way we reward science, or you know, at least in astronomy, how it seems to be going at the moment, that's not a maybe not a healthy direction. Yeah. Yeah. Do we really want startup culture, like move fast and break things in astronomy, or do we want <laughs> more? <laughs> I don't know. Long-term, slow science that's correct and robust. Choose your weapon. (laughs) Speaking of things that are uh, correct and robust, or maybe things that may not be, I don't know. How do you guys feel about Planet Nine as a black hole? I'm not a planets person. I'm not really a black holes person. I mean, I saw a really cool planetarium show on Planet Nine at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago when I was there earlier this year. So that was really cool. But other than that, and yeah, I mean, okay, Mike Brown's got the coolest Twitter name ever of Pluto Killer. He kind of led the redefinition of Pluto, but also is the one leading the, the charge on Planet Nine. I feel like I need to remember his name and then point people to his Twitter when they try to argue with me about Pluto. (laughs) yeah i honestly feel like it's a bit of a dream crusher twitter name though i'm not sure if i like it or not it's kind of (laughs) like yeah we had an emotional moment yesterday we were in the institute library looking at really old books so like the writings of copernicus and all this sort of stuff and one of the books was the nine planets that was the name of the book and we were just like oh oof what used to be Okay, I think that that's all the time we have. So with that, that concludes episode 79 of Astro Soundbites, The Vanishing Act. If you want to read the Astro Bites that we talked about today, check out the links in the show notes. And if you want to listen to any of our other fabulous episodes, you can listen to them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever else you get your podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos.
I miss the assassin Twitter account. <laughs> I remember it used to be really sassy. Like I thought it used to be really entertaining. Assassin sassy. <laughs>